Heavenly Father, thank you that you've spoken in the past in many and different ways. And finally, you've spoken through Jesus, your son, who is described as the word. So as we focus on an incident from his life, we pray that even that event that happened all those years ago might be real to us and that we might understand what it means to us and that you might speak to us by your Holy Spirit who is still present when your people gather in the name of Jesus. So help me to explain it clearly, help us to understand it and to put it into practice and to know most of all who Jesus is and your amazing love that you've shown to us through him and we ask it in his name. Amen. Abyss, angel, circus, diet, dogma, ethos, genesis, history, hypocrite, organ, phobia, pirate, symbol, theory, zeal. Just a few among the thousands of words which are derived directly from the Greek language and have been so assimilated into English that probably most of you didn't know that they came originally from Greek. But there are still a few words that we use in English that still look and sound Greek. And a good example is a particular word which usually has an exclamation mark after it. The word is Eureka. For those who don't know the story... It comes from a famous story about a brilliant mathematician and philosopher whose name was Archimedes. He lived about 2,200 years ago in the Greek city of Syracuse. One day, the king of Syracuse, Hieron II by name, commissioned the crafting of a crown as a tribute to the gods that he worshipped. He gave a carefully weighed amount of gold to a goldsmith who produced a beautiful crown and presented it to the king. However, the king became suspicious that his craftsman had not used all of the gold that he'd given him. It was a common trick to alloy gold with silver, which was a much cheaper metal. But the king had no way of proving whether his suspicions were correct, and the craftsman had been dishonest. And so he called upon his brilliant close friend Archimedes to tell him in some ways whether he was correct or not, and to solve the problem. Now, Archimedes knew, you just need to follow this, okay? Archimedes knew that gold and silver have different densities, meaning that a lump of gold will weigh about twice as much as a lump of silver of the same size. The trouble was, in those days, no one knew how to work out the size of an irregularly shaped object like a crown. Everybody still with me? Good. While he was pondering this conundrum, Archimedes went to the public baths to relax. Big ones like the pool below, okay? As he slipped into the water, he noticed some of the water spilling over the edge, and he had a sudden flash of inspiration. The amount of displaced water must be exactly the same volume as him. And if you know the volume of an object, you can easily now calculate its density. All he needed to find out was whether a lump of pure gold with the same volume as the crown weighed more. The crown would be lighter if the craftsman had deviously used some of the silver. Archimedes, 
in a fit of jubilation, <laughs> leapt straight out of the bath and ran naked down the streets of the city shouting, Eureka! Or to give it its correct pronunciation in Greek, Eureka! I found it! Past tense, Greek verb, Eurisco, to find. The goldsmith soon confessed and was summarily dealt with by the king. Ever since then, the word, usually mispronounced and misspelled Eureka, has been used for any important discovery. It is said that in California, in 1848, when the miners there discovered gold, they ran around the street shouting, Eureka. And in fact, there's a city near there in California, which is called Eureka. I don't know how the Americans pronounce it, Eureka, I suppose, something like that. (laughs) And actually, the word Eureka is on the Californian state seal. Now, you may say, what on earth has this got to do with the baptismal service? I'm coming to it, all right? (laughs) What I want to do this evening is focus on another story in which the same word was used about a discovery. Not of a principle or a property, but of a person. And it would be no exaggeration to say that this was the greatest discovery. It's a true story of an event that happened about 200 years after Archimedes lived. And it's found in this book, in the Bible, in the second part, which is called the New Testament, as opposed to the Old Testament, for those who are not familiar with the Bible. And it's found in one of the four events, uh, one of the four accounts that describe the life of Jesus. There are four of them in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay, this is originally written in the Greek language, which is why I'm coming back to Eureka in a minute, all right? Stay with me. But you'll be glad to know I'm not going to read it in Greek. I'll read it in English, all right? But as we read it, let's see if you can spot the Eureka moment, all right? Look for the Eureka moment. Now, it will help to have a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews. Just grab one. And to help you find it, it's a long book with lots of pages and numbers. It's page 1064. Page 1064. And it's John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 43 to 51. And this is from the early life of Jesus when he's just setting out at the age of 30, going through Israel, choosing his followers, his disciples. All right, verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, they'd just been called as well, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree. Before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is our story. God's word. Now, did you spot the Eureka moments in verse 45? Here's Philip telling his friend Nathaniel about the Eureka moment. Let me read it to you uh, 
with the literal word order from the original, all right? Philip found Nathanael and said to him, the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one written about in the prophets, Eureka men. That's just a plural form of Eureka, okay? We, not I, all right? Now, you need to have a bit of background to know why this was such an amazing, exciting thing for Philip. Philip is a Jew. He's absolutely, incredibly excited because he has just met the person whom his whole nation had been expecting for centuries. The person about whom the prophets of Israel had written and foretold for hundreds of years before. The one the people called in their own language, in Hebrew, Messiah, or in Greek, Christ. God's chosen savior, the one who's going to deliver them from their enemies, especially the Romans that then were ruling over Israel and most of the ancient world. So when he finds out this amazing news, he rushes off to tell his friend Nathaniel. Now it is just possible you are here this evening because an excited friend invited you to this service. Maybe even one of those being baptized. He or she wants you to know what they have found, what, or more importantly, who they've been looking for all their lives. And you heard that in their testimonies. Eureka! And naturally, they want you to share in the same excitement and make the same discovery for yourself. That's part of being a friend, that you care and you say, wow, if you only knew what I knew, what I found. But as they go on to explain what they've discovered, maybe your reaction is like that of Nathaniel. Let me read the whole of verse 45 again. Again, it's important to read it with the original word order. I'll explain why in a moment. Here we go again. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, The one Moses wrote about in the law and the one written about in the prophets, Eurekaman, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, there's nothing more excited than a person who has good news. There is nothing more than a person who deflates you with pouring cold water on it or on you. When Nathaniel hears what Philip says, he pours cold water on it. What was his problem? It wasn't Moses and the prophets. He too was looking for the Messiah. It wasn't Jesus or even his father, Joseph. No, it was the final word, which was probably why Philip, when he told him, saved it till last. Guessing his possible reaction. Thus Nathaniel's response, a negative response, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked. Now, we can't be absolutely sure why this was such a problem for Nathaniel. Why was Nathaniel so negative about Nazareth? It may have been a matter of local rivalry. For we learn later in John's Gospel that Nathaniel came from a town called Cana, a neighboring town in the province of of Galilee, right next to Nazareth. And there seems to have been some sort of rivalry between Cana and Nazareth. Now, I'm not going to draw any parallels here between Edinburgh and any other local city. (laughs) But you can imagine Nathaniel saying, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? The only good thing from Nazareth is the Cana camel train. (laughs) However, there may be a more compelling reason for Nathaniel's dismissal of Nazareth. There is evidence, as we're going to see in a moment, that Nathaniel was a bit of a Bible scholar. And he knew that his scriptures, that's our Old Testament in our Bible, he knew that the Hebrew scriptures didn't even mention Nazareth. 
let alone predict it as the birthplace of the Messiah. Now, every good Bible student knew that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, as the prophet Micah foretold, which was a few miles south of Jerusalem. So as soon as his friend comes up and says, we found him, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, he says, sorry, mate, you got the wrong choice here. Can't be right. Possible. Now, there are still many people who react like Nathaniel when they hear about Jesus. Most people, if you ask almost everybody in this church, a large percentage of people in this church who are Christians, how did you hear about Jesus? They either grew up in a Christian home, or if they didn't, they were brought along by a friend who told them about Jesus. That's how the Christian faith spreads. If you read first century historians, secular historians, Romans, Greeks, they talk about these early Christians that everywhere they go, they gossip their gospel. And that's the word for the good news about Jesus. And that is still true today. Maybe again, that's why you're here this evening. Maybe some friend full of excitement came to you and said, you'll never guess what? Incredible news. The most wonderful thing has happened to me. And you say, what is it? You got engaged? Found a new job? Passed your exams? Won the lottery? And your friend has answered, no, no, nothing so trivial as that. I found the answer to life, the universe, everything. It's Jesus. And immediately prejudice kicks into gear. Probably not about Nazareth. Probably doesn't worry most of us here, but about some other issue which you believe pours cold water on such enthusiasm. Jesus, what about evolution? Where did Cain get his wife from? Surely you don't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. The Bible is full of contradictions. The gospel accounts were made by the church hundreds of years later. Yes, I've read the Da Vinci Code. And anyway, if there's a God of love, how could he allow suffering? And maybe 101 more objections which have caused you to dismiss Jesus and Christianity out of hand. Now, what is the answer to these objections, some of which are quite real and valid? They're simply summarized by Philip's response to his friend's prejudice. I want to say three things very simply and briefly, briefly for me. Right. Here's my opening point. One, come and see an open mind. You see that in verses 43 to 46, if you have the Bible in front of you. Notice, for the great encouragement of every Christian here, and especially if you're a new Christian... Philip doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't have an answer to Nathaniel's objection about the birthplace of Jesus. In actual fact, there is, of course, an answer. Jesus came from Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem, as the prophets had foretold. Philip didn't know that, but he doesn't get into an argument about it. Not only that, Philip was wrong on another account about the father of Jesus. Jesus was not the son of Joseph. But a person who's only just met Jesus isn't clued up about the virgin birth and the supernatural circumstances about the conception of Jesus. No, Philip doesn't have any of the answers, but he knows a man who does. So in response to Nathaniel's dismissal of Jesus, Philip simply says to him, look, come and see for yourself. He knows that if Nathaniel will just investigate with an open mind, then a personal encounter with Jesus will change his life and his mind. Now, if you are not a Christian here this evening, that's okay. I would simply say to you what Philip said to Nathaniel, don't write it off, come and see. Check it out. Jesus and the Christian faith can stand investigation. We don't ask you in this church when you arrive to leave your brain at the door and switch off mentally. There are answers to questions which people have, though not all. There are no neat answers to some questions. Why does the God of love allow suffering? We can wrestle through it. 
we've just finished running a course called Glad You Asked, in which people were encouraged to come and ask the most difficult questions they had about the Christian faith, life, the universe, and everything. You've heard already about the course called Christianity Explored, in which you can investigate the Christian faith in another of the accounts written by a man called Mark. Again, you can ask what you like without embarrassment. You don't have to sing a hymn, stand up, do anything. You simply come along with your questions and seek an answer. The one thing we don't want you to do, God forbid, is just to write off Jesus in the Christian faith without thinking it through. For if it is true, it is the matter of the greatest importance to you. Many years ago, C.S. Lewis, the great classics professor and author, wrote, Christianity, if false is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Don't say, as so many people sadly do, I've made up my mind, don't confuse me with the facts. Come and see. That's what Nathaniel did, and his mind and his life were changed forever. So we discover a second theme in the story. Here's the second theme. I saw you an open life, verses 47 to 49. Uh, Nathaniel accepts the invitation of Philip and goes to meet this Jesus. He doesn't know Jesus, but he soon discovers something really interesting, that Jesus knows him. Nathaniel discovers that Jesus knows his true character. Uh, and this is revealed by the opening words that Jesus speaks to him. He doesn't shake him by the hand as far as we know and say, Hi, Nathaniel, how are you doing? Good to meet you. He looks at him carefully and he says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now, this may seem a strange comment to make when you first meet somebody, but not to a Jew. To understand this, you need a little bit more background information about the Jewish faith and about the Old Testament. So just bear with me a moment. The father of the nation of Israel and God called was a man called Abraham. Okay? He had a son called Isaac, and Isaac in turn had twin sons. The firstborn was called Esau, and his twin brother, who followed him literally hard on his heels, grasping his heel as he emerged from the womb, was called Jacob. So he was given the name Jacob, Jacob, which means he grasped the heel, which was a figurative way of saying he deceives, or in modern parlance, he grabs what he can by any means. And what Jacob was, as the story unfolds, and you can read it in the Bible, in the first book in the Bible called Genesis, as the story unfolds, we discover that Jacob is Jacob by name and Jacob by nature. He's a sharp operator, always on the lookout for number one, always prepared to deceive so that he got what he wanted. In literal Greek, what Jesus says to Nathaniel is, here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The word deceit is used of a bait, or a cunning device to catch a fish. And in this respect, Jacob was a smart fisherman. In the end, he used deceit and bait, and it's an amazing story, you don't have time to look at it. It's there in the Bible, warts and all, to cheat his brother out of his inheritance and birthright as the firstborn son. Yet despite all this, it was Jacob, not Esau, that God chose to continue the line of his people. And in the end, God taught him a very hard lesson over many years. And finally, God gave him a new name, and his new name was Israel, one who prevails with God. Yet the characteristic of Jacob, one who uses deceit to get his ends, became a byword and a reputation among the people to whom he gave his name, the Israelites. But when Jesus meets Nathanael, he sees something different in him. 
literally, you're an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Or as one writer puts it, you're an Israelite in whom there's no Jacob. Nathaniel is a man of integrity, straightforward. What you see is what you get. And surprised to discover that Jesus knows him and knows his character, he asks, how do you know me? And the reply of Jesus reveals to Nathaniel that Jesus knows not only his true character, but also his past experience. For he says to him, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now again, on the surface, this doesn't seem like a very you know, brilliant comment, but you need to read between the lines and understand the background. For the Jew, the fig tree was almost synonymous with home. Everybody had a fig tree. And the shade of the fig tree was a place where you sat and meditated, and a Jew would take the scrolls and read the scriptures. And in this context, when Jesus says to Nathaniel, I saw you, he doesn't mean, ah, I noticed you the other day, you know, when I was walking down the road. No, he means, I saw you, I know about your search. I know your character. I know your motives. I know your life, Nathaniel. I know all about your search for the truth. One of the first things you experience when you come to God with an open mind like Nathaniel does, and it really is a frightening thing, it might happen to you even this evening, is that you discover that there is a God who knows you. A God who sees you. Many times I've heard a person say, I was in church with all these people and it was like I was the only person there. And God was speaking to me personally. He might be speaking to you personally, even this evening. I think many years ago in my last church, I stood at the door at the end. You get some funny conversations sometimes in the door, apart from the good morning, good evening, how are you? I'm fine, you know. This guy came up, young man, and he was absolutely livid. I could see he was shaking with anger and he said, I'm going to get him. I said, who? He He said, my dad. And I said, who's your dad? And he named one of the church members. I said, why are you going to get him? He said, because he's told you all about me. I know him. And that's why you said what you said, because you were having a go at me, because my dad told you all about I said, your dad's never spoken to me about you. He didn't believe me, and he managed to keep them apart and <laughs> reconcile them. But that's an extreme example. But, but, but God speaks to you through this book, his, the Bible. That's why we prayed at the beginning. If you pray genuinely, don't be surprised if God speaks to you and says, I know all about you. I, I know about you. It, it's, a, it's a kind of frightening experience to think you're not alone in the universe. There is a God who knows all about me. And it brings mixed emotions. First of all, it brings fear because if God knows all about you and your life is an open book to him, that's kind of frightening, isn't it? Because would you want your life to be an open book to anybody? Are they not with all of us things we're ashamed of? But it also brings a sense of wonder when you discover that this God not only knows about you, he loves you. And he wants to know you. And he knows about you. He knows the Jacobs of us here. Those who've gone through life manipulating and cheating our way through life, doing things that we're ashamed of. Looking out for number one all the time. And all of us have got a bit of that in us, haven't we? But he also knows the Nathaniels who are here. The person of integrity. And you're here and you're saying, you're weighing up what I'm saying and what God may be saying to you. And you're saying, I'm searching for the truth here. I'm not going to be put off here. Searching for the truth. Whoever you are, your life is an open book before God and you, you cannot hide from him. You can run away from him. You cannot escape him. And that's the reason for Nathaniel's confession. 
He comes out with this astounding confession. From one minute, is, is a cynic, Nazareth. Can anything good from, come from there? Come and see. He meets Jesus, and he comes out with this fantastic confession. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, teacher, that means Jewish teacher, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Nathaniel realizes Jesus is no ordinary man. He's a teacher, and no ordinary teacher, but the son of God, the king of Israel. And if Nathaniel is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit, then he must bow the knee to this man, this king, this son of God, and swear his allegiance. It's the start of faith. It's the start of a relationship with Jesus. And that's where we all come to. We come to a point of confession. Baptism is a beginning like that. It's a confession. Can I say we've got this weird idea that you become a Christian and then you wait for 10 years till you're good enough and decide to get be baptized. Listen, that's stupid. You'll never be good enough. You don't get baptized because you're good enough. You get baptized because you're not good enough. But you put your trust in Jesus who is good enough, more than good enough for you. And you get baptized as soon after you come to faith, not as soon as you can delay it for as long as you like. But it's the beginning, baptism. It's the start, a new life. It's a sign of something that's happened recently or not so recently. And when you do, you'll discover, as Nathaniel did, and all seekers who find Jesus and are found by Jesus, that's the beginning of a journey. For notice, here's my third and final point in the account. Come and see an open mind. I saw you, an open life. And finally, last couple of verses, Jesus says, you shall see an open heaven. Verses 50 to 51. Look carefully at what Jesus says in response to Nathaniel's confession of faith. He speaks to him as to every seeker who comes to him. He says, this is not the end of the story. I've got far more for you. He speaks words of future promise. First of all, he says to Nathaniel, I'm going to give you greater evidence for faith in me. Jesus said, you believe, Nathaniel, you've put your trust in me. Because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, you shall see greater things than this. Nathaniel's faith is like a germ, a, a, a seed that's germinating. It's based on Jesus' knowledge of him. But there are greater things, there is much greater evidence that will cause him to believe even more firmly and strongly that Jesus is who he says he is, which will reinforce his embryo faith and bring it to full maturity. What are these greater things? Jesus goes on to explain these greater things will mean greater access to God through him, through Jesus. Look again at the final words. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Now again, what does this mean? What's obscure to us would be crystal clear to Nathaniel because he's a Jew, okay? And again, the reference throughout this story is to this man, Jacob. I told you that he twisted his brother Esau out of his birthright and his inheritance. Esau, his brother, was not too thrilled by this. And he said, I'm going to kill him. And so he's a bit of a mummy's boy. His brother was his daddy's boy, big hunter outdoor type. He was a soft sort of guy, Jacob. And so his mother got him a packed lunch and a piece and said, look, son, you better get off and get out of here until things settle down a bit and your brother's temper cools down a bit. He ended up being away for a couple of decades. But anyway... So he ran away from home. Ran away from home. And the first night, miles from home, he camps out into the open stars, a stone for his pillow, and he fell asleep. 
And the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, tells us that while he was asleep, he had a dream. Here's what it says. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. Get the story? And there above it stood the Lord. There on earth, here's Jacob on earth, sees a stairway to heaven. For there at the top of the ladder is the Lord, the God of his people, who reaffirms the promise he made to his father and his grandfather, Isaac and Abraham. The promise is, heaven is open. You can get to know God. Not because you deserve it, Jacob. You're the last guy on earth that deserves it. But because of God's grace that we heard about this evening, because of God's grace, a relationship is made possible. Now, come back to the story. Here's Nathaniel. Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus said you're going to see greater things than these. You're going to see heaven open, the angels ascending and descending upon who? The son of man, the title he used for himself. He says to Nathaniel, what Jacob was promised is about to come true and it's going to come true through me. The one who is confessed to be the son of God is also the son of man. God came down to earth as a human being. And why does God come to earth as a human being? In order to make a stairway up to heaven. You see, religion is about people trying to get up to God to build a stairway to heaven. Christianity is about God making a stairway to earth and taking the initiative and doing what we could never do because all our ladders fall short, way short. Jesus came to earth in order to make a stairway to heaven, in order that our relationship with God, broken by our rebellion and sin, might be restored so the ladder might be erected. And how did he do that? Well, he did it by dying on a cross, bearing our sin. He took our place. And so for the first time in eternity, when he died on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time ever, heaven was shut off to the Son of God from his Father. But through his death, heaven was opened, is opened to us all. The promise made to Nathaniel was fulfilled through the death of Jesus on the cross. Now listen to Mark's account of what happened when Jesus actually died, the moment he died. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry, saw how he died, he said, surely this man is the Son of God. There was a heavy curtain in the temple in Jerusalem that separated sinful human beings from a holy God. The high priest went in once a year to offer sacrifice for the people through this curtain. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was ripped apart. And now, here's the great news. The kingdom of heaven is open to all who put their trust in Jesus. You can have a relationship with Jesus. There's a stairway to heaven that's available. Even a hard-bitten Roman soldier who thought he'd seen it all says, as Jesus dies, surely this man was the son of God. The kingdom of heaven is open to all people. An open heaven. You will sing. One final thing as I conclude. And we turn to the baptisms. Time's gone. Notice one thing that you can't understand because the English language. But you'll see a footnote if you've got our Bibles. 
In verse 51, if you've got really good eyesight here, there's a little letter when it says, I tell you the truth. It says, Ellen, at the bottom, it says the Greek is plural. You see, it's a promise, not just to Nathaniel. Nathaniel, I tell you, Nathaniel, you'll see heaven open. It's a promise to all people, you plural, you people here in Charlotte Chapel this evening. It's a promise not only to Nathaniel, a promise to all who will come and see and come and believe. Put their trust in the one who died for their sin, who alone can make a way into heaven, into God's presence. When I was growing up, we used to sing that lovely old hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away. And one of the verses says, There was no other good enough to pay the price for sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. That's another picture of, of a gate rather than a ladder, but it's the same idea. He only could unlock the gate. Heaven is open. You can know God personally through Jesus. But you step through by faith. You commit your life to Jesus Christ, as the three people explained so clearly this evening. They did it at a particular point in their lives. All the evidence is there for those who come and see with an open mind. Can I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, get a Bible or take one with you. We'll replace it. That's okay. Read through this John's Gospel. John wrote it for a particular reason. And at the end of it, he says, there's compelling evidence to trust Jesus for faith. Right at the end of his book, nearly at the end, next to the last chapter, He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So I ask you, have you believed? Have you put your trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who died so that you might be forgiven? And have you received? Have you received life in his name? Because when you put your trust in Jesus, God comes to live within you by his spirit. A restored relationship with God, made real by his Holy Spirit. This is good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God's promise on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon those first disciples waiting in an upper room. Apostle Peter finished a great sermon to the people when they said, what do we do now? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We talked about the great discovery. If you actually look at the text closely, it's not just that Philip and Andrew and Peter and all these people found Jesus. If you look closely at the text, for enough time, read the chapter, you'll discover it's Jesus who found them. Jesus is still seeking, looking for lost people. And when he finds you and you find him, that's the greatest discovery which those being baptized today have made and which you can make today. Eureka! God bless you. We're going to sing a hymn that focuses on that and then the baptisms will follow. And it's a hymn that that invites us to come and see.